0: Our scripture passage today is from Galatians, and this will be the passage on which Tony will preach. This is Galatians chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then? In seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body... I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Gary. Since Easter, we've been looking at uh, Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. This was a group of churches that he planted in the area that is now central Turkey. And um, he had a problem. Paul would plan the churches. He would share the gospel, his experience of Christ. He would create a church, establish a leadership, and then he would move on. But in the early church, and Paul was the earliest of the early church, there was a problem. There was a debate within the Christian church as to what is the relationship between Christianity and Judaism. Is it necessary to become a Jew, that is, to be circumcised to follow the law, all the laws in the Old Testament? Is it necessary to become Jewish in order to be a real Christian? And it was a real debate. People were coming in after Paul and teaching in his churches this doctrine. You have to be Jewish. And so Paul got upset. He went back to Jerusalem. He confirmed with the leaders of the church that his gospel was indeed the gospel that they had heard from Jesus. And they sent him with their blessing to go out into the world and and share what he has been sharing and bring the gospel to the Gentiles. That is the non-Jewish world. Everyone who's outside of Jerusalem, outside of Palestine. But it still remained a debate. It still remained an issue within the church. And so Paul writes this letter to fight his side of this debate. And it's an important debate. Because it's a debate about whether or not you need anything in addition to Jesus to be a true Christian. Do you need Jesus plus something else? So let's have a look at it. When I saw that they were not as acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Cephas is just another version of Peter. Peter's name, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We saw earlier, after Uh, Paul went down to Jerusalem and met with the disciples, the apostles, met with Peter, and they say, yes, go out and bring the gospel to the Gentile world. Peter comes up from Jerusalem, the center of Judaism, and the Jewish Christians, and he comes north to Antioch, which is in Syria, which is the center of the effort to bring the gospel to Gentiles, people outside of Palestine. And when Peter first comes up, he's fine. He mixes with his Gentile Christian brothers. They eat together. They uh, share their lives together. And Peter was uh, welcoming Gentile Christians, just as he would a Jewish Christian. But then some other people come up from Jerusalem. And Peter gets embarrassed. Because for a Jew to eat with a Gentile is to break the law is to become unclean he falls back into his old habits the way he grew up as a Jew he gets embarrassed when these Jewish Christians come up and he drops the Gentile Christians as second class Christians and that's what Paul is challenging him on challenges him to his face makes an issue of it in front of all the believers And then he begins to challenge this whole idea. Because from a human perspective, it makes sense. Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. He came to the Jewish people. He himself was a faithful Jew. All the early church, all the disciples were Jewish. Jesus claimed to be a fulfillment of the Jewish law. So to claim... Jewish identity was not an outrageous thing to do from a human perspective. What Paul brings is God's perspective. We saw last time we looked at this letter that God appeared to Paul and a God appeared to Peter and he challenged them both to recognize that the gospel was not just for Jews but for Gentiles. God claims all of humanity. He's not just for one people. And so Paul's mission to the broader world was sanctioned by God. That's why he fights so fiercely for this in his letter. And so Paul is giving us God's perspective on the significance and power of the gospel for the non-Jewish world. And this is where he begins to lay out his defense. And in fact, the rest of his letter is going to be drawing out the implications of Christ alone. It's the reason the letter to the Galatians is so important. It's the earliest writing in the New Testament. This was written before the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it is the first place that this is laid out as clearly as Paul does it right here. Verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. When I went to seminary as a Protestant, nearly all the theology that we learned was unpacking these verses. Justified by faith in Christ, not justified by anything else. But what does it mean? To understand it, you have to understand this word justified. Kind of a cold, forbidding word. It's from the Greek word dikos. And it means to be right, to be just, to be innocent before the law or in the law. I always remember it by thinking of when you have a, a word document. You know how you justify the text? You can justify the text to the left margin, or to the middle, or to the right margin. It means you line it up, you justify it, with the margin. That's the sense of this word. To be made right in relationship to something. And of course, in Christian terms, the way the word is used in the Bible, it means to be right in relationship to God. To be righteous, these are different um, definitions of this word through uh, the 20th century. Righteous before God, approved by God, just in the eyes of God, in conformity to God's own being, to be part of his will, to be part of his standard of rightness. And of course, when Jesus comes into the world, when he collects his disciples, all good, God-fearing Jews, they discover that this is not merely following rules. What had happened in Judaism is the personal relationship with God that they were given as the chosen people became a relationship to a dry, static set of rules. Now that's fine if you have an earthly king if you are in a relationship with some kind of government you know obey the law and you're a good citizen follow the rules keep your nose clean don't fight city hall and you're fine but of course as jesus reveals to the disciples god is not some distant government he's not a rule book god is personal And in Jesus, the disciples encounter the personal God who you cannot follow through a rule book that you have to be in relationship with. And that's why faith in Christ is such a transformation. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one is justified. Now, as I said, these are potent verses. We're going to look at them for the rest of this letter and unpack them. But notice what the issue is. How do you have a relationship with God? Now, it's often, sometimes, not sometimes, I think it's often said or set of the Bible. But in the Bible, you have the Old Testament and Judaism, which is relating to God by the law, by a set of rules. And then you have the New Testament, which is relating to God through grace, through faith, through Jesus. That's a poor way of looking at it. When God establishes his relationship with Israel in the Old Testament, in uh, the book of uh, Genesis and Exodus. It is a relationship of grace. God chooses Israel. It's not a matter of their performance. He calls them a stiff-necked people. He doesn't choose them because they're lovely. He chooses them purely through his own decision, his own desire. And therefore, the Jewish people are just as much a part of God's grace as any Christian. The issue is, how then shall we live? Knowing we have a relationship with God, a gracious one, what should we live like? What should our lives be like? How do we behave? And the Jewish Christians were not very impressed by the Gentile Christians. Verse 17. But, if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? So here you have, Paul is saying, a transition. In Judaism, the law had become the relationship, not the personal connection with God. But if you give up the law if you have a relationship with God just through faith in Christ, doesn't that mean we participate in sin? And what seems to have been happening back then was that the Jewish Christians were appalled by the Gentile Christians. After all, the Gentiles were coming out of Greek culture. We see in the letter that their licentiousness was a big problem. They were bringing the patterns of behavior the assumptions, the bad habits of their previous life into the church. This, by the way, oftentimes happens in new churches. New Christians tend to live the old life, and they do things that are inappropriate. And the Jewish Christians, seeing this, are saying, look at this, Paul. Do you expect us to call these people brothers? is putting faith in Christ alone and letting go of the law, the slippery slope to sin. So that's the fight that Paul has amongst uh, is fighting against. And you have to be sympathetic to these Jewish Christians. They could see it. Judaism, Palestine, was a very conservative country. And the Greeks were up to all kinds of stuff. They brought the theater into Palestine. Everybody knows that the theater is made up of perverts and prostitutes. There were plays being performed right there in Jerusalem. Jesus probably saw some of them. It was scandalous. They were bringing in licentious literature. They were bringing in brothels. They had temple prostitutes. They had all kinds of things happening. And they were bringing that into the church. In fact, if you read Paul's letters, many of the letters are challenging Gentile Christians for bringing this behavior into the Christian church. So the Jewish Christians had a point. And it is a point that we have to this day. Sure, you can be saved by Jesus. But how are you going to change? How is your behavior, your lifestyle... The patterns of your life, how are they going to be transformed? How are you going to be renewed? Surely, there needs to be some rules. Sure, you can become a Christian through Christ, but don't you have to work at being a better Christian, a better person? Aren't the things that you have to do? It seems too easy. This, by the way, has always been a criticism of the gospel, If you only have to put your faith in Christ and nothing else, why don't people like Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot, they could just say, Lord, forgive me, and they would be forgiven for the terrible things they did. I was watching a a performance by Sarah Silverman actually on Netflix last week, and she said exactly that. It's a problem to this day. Isn't the gospel too easy? And what is Paul's answer? absolutely not because the gospel is not some dry mechanism it's not some trick that you can pull off it's a relationship with Jesus and that's what transforms us that relationship think about this why do people lie why do you lie We lie because we're afraid of being hurt. We're afraid of being found out, of being viewed as something less than perfect. We, fr- we lie to hide things in our life that we're ashamed of, to avoid blame, to avoid punishment. We all do it. But if you believe the gospel, if you believe... You are in relationship with God now through Christ. You are in relationship with the omniscient, creator of all things, including you, from whom there are no secrets. He knows you. He knows you're a liar. He knows your shames. He knows what you deserve. And he has decided to love you and through Christ bring you into his family anyway. If you truly recognize yourself as a child of God, beloved, and safely in his family for all eternity, that's what's going to stop you lying, because you have nothing more to hide. The deepest, darkest secrets are visible to the only opinion that matters, God. And through Christ, he said, I love you. Why do we steal? Because we think we deserve something that we don't have. Think that we need something that we don't have. That we know better than God what would make our life run better. Something that we think we need. But if we believe that God loves us as a father loves his children then we also know that he would not withhold anything that we actually really do need. That he's going to take care of us. That he knows how our life should be because he sees it from the beginning to the end. And that everything that happens to us and everything in our life is important, even if we don't know why. And there will be no lack if we are in the family of the one who created all things. Why do we gossip? Because we're insecure about ourselves. Because we want to be part of an in-crowd. Because we want to be surrounded by people who identify somebody else as the problem. But what does the gospel say? That we already are part of of the only in crowd that could ever ultimately matter God's family it doesn't get better than that the creator of all things loves us completely and therefore we don't have to worry about the opinion of other people we don't have to participate in cliques we don't have to be part of putting other people down we can celebrate the people around us rather than trying to compete with them. Because we already have everything that you could possibly want out of existence. The gospel, the relationship with God through Christ, the fact that we are invited in, is what transforms our heart. Not rules, not laws. Law has a purpose, and we'll talk about that uh, in a few weeks but the ability of the gospel to transform the heart is what Christianity is all about. Faith in Jesus and nothing else. Francis Schaeffer um, wrote a wonderful book called True Spirituality, where he talked about how people are transformed. And he said this, Eventually, the Christian life and true spirituality, are not to be seen as outward at all. He's talking about external laws. But rather inward. The climax of the Ten Commandments is the tenth commandment. Thou shalt not covet. The commandment not to covet is an entirely inward thing. This is the hub of the whole matter. Actually, we break the last commandment before we break any of the others. Coveting is the negative side of the positive commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. I am to love God enough to be content. A quiet disposition... And a heart giving thanks at any given moment is the real test to the extent which we love God at that moment. When we are at rest, it's the peace that transcends all understanding. We are secure in the knowledge that God loves us, that He will give us everything that we need, and through Christ. He will solve any problem that separates us from him. And when we can rest in that, this world really has nothing that we absolutely need. And therefore we can enjoy it without coveting, without stealing, without hurting other people, without trampling over them. We can be generous. We can be supportive. We can be gentle with each other. My favorite example of this transformation is uh, John Newton. Before we go to the Lord's Supper today, we're going to sing Amazing Grace. And it was written by John Newton. Now, he started his life, well, the mid-part of his life, he was a monster. John Newton was a captain of a slave ship, one of the cruelest and bloodiest trades the world has ever known, where human beings were treated as objects where most of them died before they got to their next port, where when they got sick, they were thrown overboard. That was his trade. But on May 10th, 1748, he got caught up, his ship got caught up in a terrible storm and began to come apart. And he thought he was going to die and he called out in the middle of the storm on the deck of that ship that he thought was sinking Lord have mercy upon us and amazingly the ship survived and he celebrated that date May 10th for the rest of his life and he left that trade and he became a pastor in London one of his congregants there was William Wilberforce who, listening to John Newton talk about his experience with the slave trade, got convicted by God that he was going to devote his life to challenging the slave trade. Now, this was at a time when it was the biggest trade in the world. It would be like one of us saying, we're going to stop their oil business. But he was called, and he formed this group. They were called the Clapham Sect. He was a, At the time, he was a student. And they pledged to each other that they were going to pray until the slave trade ended. And he entered Parliament and he began to fight against the slave trade in the British Empire. At that point, at its largest extent. And it took him decades. But the Clapham sect continued to meet and they continued to pray for him. And eventually... British Parliament passed a bill sponsored by William Wilberforce and the slave trade was ended everywhere in the British Empire that is the power of grace do you think a rule book would have produced that result that was a human heart transformed by grace and mercy who'd experienced this justification of faith in Christ who recognized it as a pure gift from God and would do anything to transform and make the world a better place in response. Look at the end of these verses. As I say, there's much more to say about them. We're going to look at them the following weeks. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Once again, these, it's amazing how dry these words are. You know, righteousness, justification, law, such cold technical words. Should we care as Christians? Should we worry about these words? Well, let me leave you with, an, with a final thought. An old definition of righteousness or a justified person is one who is such as he ought to be. One who is such as he ought to be. How ought things to be? But if you look at Genesis, in the garden, when God created Adam and Eve, it was all good. And they had a perfect relationship of harmony and love with each other. That's how it was meant to be. Love. For each other, for God. You know, when Jesus is asked to summarize the law and and, and to say what the law is really about, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Righteousness, justification, law, they were all about love. That's the purpose. That's what they point to. You know, also in Genesis, there's a lovely little detail in the story. It's almost an aside. And it's where Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they hear God coming as he is walking in the cool of the morning, It or the cool of the day, as he comes to meet them. I always loved that image. When I first read it, I loved the image of God enjoying his good creation. And I pictured him walking in the cool of the day in the morning. I pictured him walking without any sandals on. The cool Jew, the morning Jew on his toes. They heard him coming, so I imagined him maybe singing or humming or whistling or something. But as soon as I went to seminary, of course, I was set straight. That's ridiculous. Seminary is for serious scholarly types that hate fluffy, sentimental pap like that. The transcendent, omnipotent, majestic creator walking around in a garden? That's ridiculous. It's almost blasphemous. It can't be literal. It must merely be some kind of human invention or a metaphor. It's just too prosaic, too mundane For the creator of everybody. It's anthropomorphism. It's the human attempt to make God like us. Get it together, Hinchliff. Get serious about your studies. But really, is that so blasphemous? Paul knew Jesus. Peter knew Jesus. All the disciples knew Jesus because he walked this earth with them. They followed him. They walked with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus walked staggered out of Jerusalem on the way to Golgotha with the cross. God did walk on this green earth. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus do that? To make things right, to restore a broken world, to restore broken human beings so that they could live the way they're meant to live as they ought to be to make each of us one who is such as he ought to be why did he do that? what ought we to be? what's the goal? we ought to be new Adams and new Eves because we are being prepared for a new creation a new heaven, a new earth. At the very end of the Bible, the final chapters of the book of Revelation, we read this. It's uh, John. This is John's uh, letter. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. The Bible begins in a garden, but it ends in a city. But like the garden, there was something growing at the center of the city. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down to the middle of the great street of the city on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations no longer will there be any curse the throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. That is what we are being prepared for. And in that eternity, Don't you think that God, that Jesus, might want to go for a walk? And don't you think that out of pure delight, he might take off his shoes? And don't you want to be there when he is? That's what it means to be justified. That's what it means to be righteous through faith in Christ. That is why we're here. Let's pray. Gracious Father. We thank you for the promise that we are justified by faith in Christ alone and that through that we will be restored and renewed and will walk together with you. We thank you for that promise. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.